Well, welcome. It's good to see you. My name's Ian. I'm the minister of the church here. If you're a visitor, I, I know we have some visitors today. I, I was saying to one of you before the service, we, we have five children. I've always thought our family was big until I met Jean-Pierre, who's sitting just there, and his wife. I spoke to Jean-Pierre on the phone during the week, but I didn't realise. He never told me I had seven kids. So um, we thought we had a big family, but we've been beaten uh, into submission by Jean-Pierre there and his wife. Um, we're, we're in the middle of a new series that we started in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're up to session number four. Um, as you'll see, we're going quite slowly because we want to suck all the juice out of um, the passages we're looking at. Um, I want to begin by um, just talking about the Bible as we start today. The Bible, uh, here's a statement for you, maybe you, you might agree with this, you might not. The Bible is so much more than just words on a page. The Bible is so much more than just words on a page. The truth is that it is words on a page. Here they are, black and white, words on a page. It is really important that that's true. Otherwise, we would just make stuff up about God. Um, we wouldn't know whether we were coming or going. Each generation would have its own ideas about God. Um, has, as human cultures change and develop, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways, it is a tremendous thing that we can keep going back to the written, timeless word of God. We, we need the Bible like an explorer it needs a map and compass. We can't navigate our lives unless we have a map and a compass. So it's good that the Bible is words on a page, but it is so much more than that. I just want to illustrate that a little bit. Um, some people have been asking me why I brought this to church today. Um, this is, um, I was asking, well, Sam Brown was trying to guess what this is. And he made a right hash of it. He had some very good ideas. Um, I, in my work recently, we've been moving a big compressor. You know what a compressor is? A compressor, uh, basically you have a big machine and a big tank. And the machine squashes as much air as it can into the tank. And then you attach things like this to the tank. And what happens when you press the trigger? Who said that? Good. Okay. So I actually called in at work on Friday to pick this up to show you. This is, this is a, an airline. Some thought it was for putting petrol in your car. It does look like that. Small car if you were Stuart Little or something. So they, we, we, use the, we use these a lot at work. It's a good job the guys got work over the weekend because they can't do it this weekend because I've got the airline. But we use this to, to clean things. We, we, we actually use it to open tools with because we can spray pressurised air, compressed air into things. The, tanks that we, you, the tank that we've been moving needs to be very strong because when it's full of compressed air, there's a great pressure there and if the tank was made of something more flimsy, it would blow apart. It's under pressure. And I, I think there's a decent illustration of the Bible in this. The living God, the great creator of infinite worlds, has somehow, in some mysterious way, put his life, heart and being into these words on a page. Somehow God has distilled and compressed something of his Goodness. He has, if you like, squashed and packed every kind of richness and goodness into these words that we read. And that means these, this is much more than words on a page. One of Jesus' disciples once hinted at this when he said to Jesus, you have the word, Jesus said, you're not, people were leaving Jesus and, and Jesus said to his own closest friends, you're not going to leave as well, are you? And Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, you have squeezed your character and goodness 
into those words. And when we hear those words, it nourishes and feeds us. It saves us and helps us. There is goodness and power and life packed into these words. And often, I I think these verses, in a way, are kind of ready to blow. Can I put it like that? Do you think of the Bible like that? One of the... um, One of my jobs as a Christian minister, the power is not in my words. When we come to church on a Sunday, my job is to just press the trigger. The power is in the tank. The power is God compressing his goodness into his words. My job is to press the trigger and it goes... And the power that is in God's word is hopefully by God's spirit, not, not in my power been released I wonder whether that's how you think when you come to church the power and the life is not in us, it is the fact that God has kind of squashed his goodness into his word so that we might receive it as it's released what's made me think that bizarre illustration this week, well I'm still in verse 3 because verse 3 is ready to blow look with me again at verse 3 Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Well, Paul, if you were like saying this in modern language, Paul is saying, do you know what? God is amazing. God is amazing. Look at what he says here. His pen's melting as he's trying to cram into words something of God's goodness. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the one who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. With what? With every spiritual blessing. In Christ, that is a verse that is ready to blow, isn't it? Words on a page. How many words are there? Twenty? Twenty words? You could spend a century or more just trying to plumb the depths of that one verse. I I just want to press the trigger and hopefully what comes off. What is Paul's main point here in verse 3? I want to suggest to you that his main point here is that God deserves the highest accolades that can be given. He starts by saying that, praise be to God. In other words, Paul says, he deserves all the credit, all the honour, all the accolades you could possibly give. This world, as you'll know, gives lots of prizes for lots of different things. You could be a great actor and every year, once, in, once a year all the great and good actors gather for, for an Oscar night, don't they? And you, you could receive an Oscar for your dramatic prize. You could be a great author and receive something like the Booker Prize for literature. You could be a great diplomat politically and you might find you get a phone call from Someone somewhere who says you've won the Nobel Peace Prize for your work. You could be a great sportsman or woman and receive an Olympic gold medal or some prestigious trophy. Did I ever tell you about the time when Wigan won the FA Cup? What a great thing that was. Little Wigan winning the FA Cup. What a prestigious trophy that was. You could, whatever your field of work is, Paul here is saying, kudos, kudos, respect to God. He deserves the highest accolades. All of these other prizes, even an FA Cup final, it all pales into insignificance compared to the honour, the praise that God deserves to receive. Why? Why? God deserves the highest accolades for his strength and generosity. The the song that will redound through the ages of eternity will be songs of joy and praise to God because he has found a way to give the highest privileges, the greatest benefits, the most mind-blowing riches to people like us who don't deserve it. And God's people forever in eternity will be saying, wow, 
doesn't he deserve the highest praise for that? This is the Christian gospel right here. The message of the Bible is here in a nutshell. That this great God, the great creator, is moved in his heart to do something for people who don't deserve it. This is what the Bible calls salvation, but it's so much more than just a word on a page. God is in the business of saving people, rescuing people, restoring people, rebuilding people, and even uniting people. We who, in a sense, didn't love him, didn't even want him, some of us who've been very far away from him, This is the God who makes peace with rebels. This is the God who heals people who have broken hearts. This is the God who strengthens and empowers and liberates and transforms. This is the God who brings light where there's been darkness. This, in a sense, is the greatest love story the world has ever seen. It is the most amazing miracle that the world has ever known. This story of salvation requires all of God's divine intelligence to think of it. It requires all of God's divine love and power to do it. All of God's effort and creativity has been poured into this great work of God saving human beings. This chapter here, did you, it's all about God. We've read it. Now, how many times have we read it? Now, four times in church. This is session four. When you read chapter one here, it is all about God. Every word is about God. Paul does not begin this letter by writing about me, 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 me. This whole chapter is about him and he and him and he. Oh, it's not me, me, me. It's him, him, him. The whole chapter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed it, for he chose us in him. In love, he predestined us. He did it, he did it, he does it, he does it, he did it. It's all about him. It's not me, 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 me. It's like Paul is saying, our culture needs to hear this, it's like Paul is saying, just for one minute, can you stop? Stop for, for a second thinking about you all the time. Your problems, your issues, your fears, and come, Paul says, and get a load of this. Just stop for a minute thinking about you, and just stand back for a minute and think about what he's doing. It is amazing, Paul says, there isn't another being who even comes close to deserving the accolades that he deserves in blessing human beings who don't deserve it with every possible imaginable spiritual blessing in Christ. Last time we were asking the question, how do we participate in this? How do we get access to the blessings that Paul speaks of in verse 3? And we saw last time, it was two weeks ago, that the answer to that question is that it is always God who takes the initiative. Verse 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In other words, God loved us not because of something in us or something that wasn't in us. He loved us because that is what he is like. It all starts with him. Christianity never begins with us thinking, I think I might be religious this week. I think I, think I need a better religion in my life. That, that may well be true, but if, even if that is true, it already started before you thought that with God knowing you and loving you before you ever knew or wanted him. So if your heart is inclined towards God, it's because he was there first. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. 
Well, this afternoon, I want us to move on and begin to think a little bit about not how we, what the foundation of these blessings are, but what these blessings actually are. Did I have another? Oh, there we go. The blessings. I'll put it in inverted commas even. So when I put the word blessings in inverted commas, I'm talking about verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Verse 3 is the summary. From verse 4, he begins to describe the details. And I think Paul says, first of all, three important things. What these blessings actually are. There are three things. What is it that God has given us? What has he done for us? And remember, we're just pressing the trigger here. I don't make this up. We're just pressing the trigger to let the kind of the goodness come out, okay? First of all, as it says there, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. You'll find that in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in his sight. I think what Paul means is that the Christian gospel delivers real character change in other words it works God who chose you in Christ before the Christ of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight God has an end in mind and for that reason Christianity works secondly it says in verse that he predestined us to be adopted as his sons this part is about belonging becoming part of God's family and thirdly um, he has given us something that Paul calls redemption which involves forgiveness and you'll find that a little bit further down in verse 7 in him that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So according to Paul here, there are three things. God, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, heavenly realms, and then he proceeds to articulate what those blessings are. And these three things are the three things that he seems to want to get excited about here, here are the three things then God deserves great credit great accolade because he has come up with something that works with something that brings me inside and something that deals with my failure I think that's a good summary of these verses down to this Seven. there's a lot more after that but we'll get to that in about six months time the, here are three blessings that God gives this is the outworking of verse 3 this is what God has chosen and predestined us for it is something that works it is something that brings us in and it is something that is very able to handle our failure why are these blessings so relevant Let me, go, let me go back I, don't, I, I want to give you an illustration first I don't normally do this I, I don't really think preachers should be too heavy on giving personal illustrations from their own life because it's not really about me it's about him and that's what we've just been talking about my job's just to press the trigger but, I, but I'm going to break that rule today and I, I want to share some personal things with you. I, in my own private thoughts recently, I've been reflecting a lot on the fact that fear has played a big part in my own life. Um, I think what's interesting about that is that people who know me might say, give over. <laughs> or in different bars, they might say, give over. You've, you don't look like a fearful person to me. You stand at the front and you talk and you don't look very frightened 
But I, I can tell you that when I was a teenager, an older teenager, I kept a diary. And I can remember very vividly the pain and angst that was involved in recording my thoughts. There, are, there were aspects of life that, if I'm honest, terrified me. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of not being able to do stuff. Fear of letting people that I care about down. Fear of what other people might think. Fear of being misunderstood. And all the while, interestingly, I was known as a very positive person. Outgoing, friendly, quite lively. And yet, inside, I often felt like my insides were falling out. Frightened. I can tell you from personal experience that fear is a big driver. It makes you do stuff. Um, Often we are driven in our insides by all kinds of fears. And and many people can, can appear to be very successful... And yet, in private, their insides feel like they're falling out. What does someone like me need? How can fears like that be soothed? Um, I I want to suggest to you that um, what someone like me needs is something that works, something that brings me from the outside in and something that can handle my failure I need some power to change I need to feel that I belong and I need to know that my failures are not fatal these are, these are the questions that cause fear will I be any good will I fit in And can I recover when I mess up? Can you relate to those fears? Maybe you can. Maybe you don't don't have fears. I don't know. But those fears resonate for me. Will I be any good? Will I fit in? And can I recover when I mess things up? Those three areas of life we might call competence, acceptance and guilt. And isn't it interesting that right here in this little compressor of God's word more than words on a page God has somehow squeezed his own goodness into these verses to deal with these very ultimate deep human questions do you know what the antidote to fear is ultimately I don't want to be flipping here I know what this feels like so I don't want to be flipping the antidote to fear in the end is love And I don't mean something sentimental and mushy. I I mean love that is strong and rugged and robust and indestructible. I don't know about you, what I need is a love that can handle me and soothe my deepest fears. There's another part of the Bible that says exactly this. And so we don't need to turn to it. It's going to appear on the screen. Some of you might be ahead of me. 1 John chapter 4 verse 18 says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love I've thought a lot about that verse as you can imagine Um, what a very interesting comment that is in God's word fear has to do with punishment so here, here are some of the things that someone who's frightened might think I'm a bad person I don't deserve things I'm on the outside I can't do it I'm not accepted I don't belong All of those ideas, in a sense, are to do with failure, inadequacy, 
and anxiety about our ultimate well-being. And I just want to pause a minute and note that this is the very fear that drives all religion. This might be a strange thing to say in a church, but every religion in the world says, you must do this and not do this in order to be accepted. If you do this, God will love you and receive you. What is that if it is not motivated by fear of being rejected? The underlying driver, the real motivation behind almost all of the world's religion is the fear of not being accepted. And so we respond by doing things to make sure that that won't happen to us. It's a very powerful driver. And even if a person isn't religious and they say, oh no, I'm not having all that religious stuff, I, I don't believe in any of that, but they still live like this. The same fears, they might not turn to religion, but they'll turn somewhere else. The same fears, this is where religion and having no faith are actually bedfellows. <laughs> they're both exactly the same, because they're both driven by the same fear. They're both trying to solve the problem of fear or how to deal with fear and take it away and all the while we're dreaming of finding somewhere some place a love that can handle us a love that can handle these questions is there such a love is there somewhere I can go to find a love that doesn't just soothe my fears but actually displaces them and drives them out there is perfect love casts out fear do you know what the very next verse says after this one whoops let's do it I'll tell you (laughs) it's not on the slide the very next verse says, We love because he first loved us. That's a great tune. The thing that frees us from fear and helps us to love is the knowledge that God has loved us first. Is that not exactly what Paul says here? God deserves the highest accolades because of his strength and his generosity to people who don't deserve it. Why? For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy, to belong, and to be forgiven. We love because he first loved us. He deserves all the credit because he comes to us not to crush us or condemn us or exclude us, but to save us provide for us and in the end to transform us we're going way slower than I thought we would when I started Ephesians I thought we'd be done by now but um, but there's so much here because this is a tank with all stuff compressed into it these are more than words on a page so I'm not going to apologise for that What I'd like us to do over the next maybe two or three weeks is to think about each of these separate blessings. So we'll think about the fact that Christianity works, the fact that it helps us belong, and the fact that it deals with our failure over three weeks, okay? Is that that okay? And and hopefully we can just plumb the depths a little bit more of each one. Um, What I want to do today is to begin looking at these three different blessings as a group just to introduce this next section and the reason for that and some of you know this because I've teed the fact with you about this during the week the reason I want to do that is because I think the order of what Paul says here is very significant so why? why? Why does Paul describe these blessings in this order? I'll come back to that he says first of all that God has chosen us to be holy and blameless we'll look at that next time but he's really saying God has the power to enable us to live in a right relationship with him 
In other words, Christianity actually has power within it. It works. It isn't just a nice idea, but it actually delivers results. It changes people. It transforms people. And that means that our lives can be what they ought to be because of this very truth. Secondly, he says, you will belong. God adopts you into his family. We'll look at that too. This is a very high privilege. And the reason it says sons, I just want to say this in passing, don't think that we should change that language from a gender point of view. Some people are very sensitive to gender language here. We could say sons and daughters. The reason Paul says sons here is not because he's excluding women. It is because the idea of the son is very important in Jewish history. And we'll get to this. This is rooted in the ideas about the firstborn son inheriting all the family's wealth. The reason, so you women, in a sense, are adopted as sons, if if that's possible. It's not the the sex of, of the thing, the gender of the thing that's going on here. It's the privilege behind it that's important. And and it's influenced too by Roman ideas about adopting non-family members as sons so that the family name can continue. So the truth is that Christianity brings you, all of you, men and women, from the outside, inside, in the most glorious way. Paul says it in chapter 1 a little bit later. He just passes over this in verse 18 when he's praying. He talks about, I I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. See what he's talking about there? If you're a Christian, you have a great dad. Do you you know what the will looks like? Uh, Sometimes, you know, my kids say, are we we in your will, dad? If if you pop your clogs, will we get everything? And I'm like, do you not want me to be alive? uh, we'll talk about the will later I'm not that old we have got a will and I don't think they're here so most of it does go to them but um, well it goes to Jane first and then if somebody happens to Jane it goes to them so not not that I've got a a lot but if if you're a Christian you have the best dad you have the, the will is incredible the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints when you are brought into that You're not on the outside, friends. You are right in the thick of the action. To belong to God is to partake in the most incredible riches. And thirdly, Paul speaks of forgiveness. We'll look at that. We'll look at what redemption means. That's the Bible word. And how forgiveness is related to that. But the order. I have a sneaky feeling that we would like to reverse this order. I think we would start with forgiveness and then we talk about belonging and then we would talk about character change. Is that true? I have a sneaky feeling that we would say this the other way around. Often our preaching in church is the other way around to the way Paul says things here. This is how he starts, straight between the eyes. He starts with character change, then he talks about belonging, and last of all he talks about forgiveness. Why? Does he reverse what we would think would be the normal order? Is is that a fair question? I I, I think that's a fair question. Why why does this seem upside down, wrong way around, back to front? Let let me just remind you that chapter 1 and chapter 2 complement one another. We said this I climbed on a chair even to illustrate it. Were you here when I did that? Chapter 1 is all about God's perspective. This is God's perspective looking down. This is from heaven's viewpoint looking downwards. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 It's our perspective. Our perspective looking up. Okay? I do that so you won't forget. In chapter 1, it's so, praise be to the God and Father who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. How does chapter 2 begin? How does chapter 2 begin? Someone shouted out. 
Where were you and me? Chapter 2 begins with us lying down on the floor looking up, dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgression sins. Where does that little section end? Well, it ends in verse 10. So all the stuff Paul says in between, we're lying on the floor looking up, God's looking down, he comes down to us, but as we're looking up, we begin dead by verse 10 he's saying, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we start dead, we need forgiveness, belonging, and we need character change. So chapter 1 starts here and comes down, chapter 2 starts here, and our experience is that we're picked up off the floor and go up. So there's something here about perspective. God has an end game in mind. He has a purpose in mind. He has what we might call a grand design in mind. Going back to my comments at the start, Paul is saying here, God deserves the highest praise because what he has planned and done and is doing actually works. God is able to change people's lives. He can take the most desperate problem cases and deliver results. He can take the immoral and really make them clean. He can take the proud and really make them humble. He can take the greedy and make them generous. He can take the lazy and make them diligent. He can take the addicted and set them free. And I'm not talking about something superficial either here. God doesn't just put a plaster on things. He actually changes our values. He actually changes our insides and helps us to see what is truly valuable and desirable. God is not in the business of just making people conform to some external standard. He is in the business of healing even our inner motives and desires this is both a, what we might call a present reality and an ongoing process that isn't finished yet. God is restoring our spiritual senses to full health. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What is God's end game? God's end game actually is to reverse the effects of the fall. In, in 1 John, that verse we read in 1 John, John says, the reason the Son of God appeared, do you know why Jesus appeared? So that he could destroy the devil's works. God's end game here is to fix what's broken, to undo what has gone wrong and put it right. And that's why the order in chapter 1 is the way it is. Let me, um, I'm just going to close with two applications that, that might be a bit longer than it sounds. But two applications. Number one, I want you to see from this passage that God cares the most about our holiness of life. That's why Paul writes it this way. We'll get to it next time, but what I mean by holiness, what I think Paul means by holiness, is ultimate health. What, what, what Paul means here is a life that is right, clean, healthy in God's sight. Now, let, let me just speak for a minute to those of you who are Christians. How do we communicate the Christian message? What do we say to people and what impression of it do we give to other people? I, I think often we start with forgiveness. We start with what's wrong and how it can be put right. And there's some logic to that. 
But Paul here effectively starts at the end and begins with a vision of what the possibilities are. And I, I, I think you've got the sense that I have a slight worry that we're a little bit out of sync with Paul on this point. Um, perhaps the reason we're so often keen to start with forgiveness is because too often we're actually wallowing in our failure rather than glorying in the power of the gospel. So we make excuses. I do it. We justify our poor behaviour. And what ends up happening is that we have no sense of real assurance of God being with us because we're basically not that fussed about changing. And frankly, we make the gospel look pathetic. Sometimes our lives, you know, you know the idea that you can preach with your words, but your lives say a lot more, don't they? I think sometimes our lives preach a gospel that is just about God letting us off. What's, so someone might come to you and say, what's so great about Christianity? Well, God gives you a pass on all your sins. Isn't it fantastic? Well, that's true, and we need that. But that's only half of it, and we can't stop there. What I mean by that is that if in the end our lives are saying, phew, it's a good job God forgives sins because I can't help being naughty. Is that the gospel that our lives proclaim to the world? Is Christianity just a relief from the guilt of repeated failure? If it is, I, I want to suggest to you that that's not a message really worth preaching that much. Because what we're saying is God is able to let you off, but he's not that good at lifting you up. Surely we need a God who can do both. We need a God who is able to lift us up to full health. I think that's why Paul starts right here. He begins by showing us what God is aiming at in our lives. And I'm not sure we would do it like he does it. Because we're not living in the same world that he's living in. Paul is really challenging our assumptions here. And sometimes I, I worry, for me and for you, that we are only grasping half of Christ. And it lulls us into a false sense of complacency. Sometimes people say to me that the non-Christians they know live better lives than Christians they know. This can be true. And I think where it is true, it is often because we've only used one half of the gospel to excuse ourselves about the other half. We claim to be Christians, but in the end, our faith is actually a form of escapism. And we actually begin to justify our sins as if God himself doesn't care about them that much. Let me um, just turn you to another part of the Bible a few, a few years ago we did a little preaching series through the book of Titus some of you will remember it and it's just turn to page 1198 in the, in the book of Titus oh man I hope I don't get carried away here because we do need to crack on Titus chapter 2 though Paul's teaching about different groups in society he talks about men and women he speaks about young people and in verse 9 <laughs> he talks to Titus about slaves. And that's not because Paul condones slavery, but that's the culture they lived in. I suppose we could think of it being a parallel of employment, maybe in our modern day. And in verse 9 he says, teach slaves to be subject. This is Titus chapter 2, and verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted why? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Well, what's Paul telling Titus to do? Titus as a minister, his job's to pull the trigger. Send God's life giving word into the people's lives by God's Spirit. 
Titus, when you put in the trigger, mate, tell the slaves to so live that other people would marvel at what God has done in their lives. That's his point. Your life should make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. And then look with me at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has made it possible for us to lie in a hammock and do nothing. (laughs) I'm being a bit crude. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Why? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from our wickedness and purify for himself a people that are what? His very own and eager to do what's good. This is transformation, isn't it? The grace of God doesn't teach us to say yes to ungodliness. The grace of God comes to teach us to say no to ungodliness. And then he says to Titus, pull the trigger, mate. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Titus, do it. Is that what our Christianity looks like? My point here is that the order in Ephesians chapter 1 is because Paul is setting a vision of what God is doing in the end. He has chosen you to be holy and blameless and healthy. It works. Paul is concerned for God to receive accolades for the transformative power that he displays in people's lives in the gospel. Paul puts it this way, because God is to be praised, because Christianity actually delivers. The second application is, we need hope more than we think we do. There's a flip side to this, we touched on it last time, another reason why Paul writes this in order, is, is, to, is in order to say, Hey, Christians, my friends in Ephesus, guys, this works. There is the most amazing encouragement and hope right here. It is true in life, isn't it, that you can't move forward in life unless you have a hope that whatever you're doing will work. It's very hard to labour with no hope. If you don't have confidence that something is worth it or that you can do it, you'll just go and do something else, won't you? Hope is very important. And a lot of people wonder about what the motivations are in Christianity. It can't be fear. We've seen that. Some Christians say we should be motivated by thankfulness. We, should, we do what we do because we're so pleased and grateful with what God has done for us. I think there's a lot of truth in that. But in the end, the thing that motivates us to live as Christian people is the confidence that as we put one foot in front of the other, God himself will breathe life into our lives. What we need is hope. That is the real motivational power. A a sense of confidence that God will do what he's promised to do. And here it is. Paul says God has chosen you in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. God is at work. We're not on our own. God isn't asking us to be holy and then waiting in the next room touching until we come up to scratch sitting on his rocking chair I, I, I wish those guys in that next room would come up to scratch and then I'll let them in that isn't what this verse is about he is able and willing to give to us everything we need 
And the reason we can get up in the morning is because God himself promises to be at work in us and breathe his life into us and through us. Elsewhere, Paul says that mere religious effort cannot deliver results. He speaks of people who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, they're trying to do something that they can't do without God's help. So what have we said? Well, we've said that the Bible is more than words on a page. God compresses his life and power into these words so that when we engage with them, we're moved to see things and do things as we should. We've said that God deserves all the credit because he is at work in his world rebuilding, restoring human lives. He is and will be forever praised because he has given us every spiritual blessing. We've also seen therefore that God's perfect love drives out our fears because Christianity works, it brings us in and it can handle our failure. We've seen that God's great and loving aim for all of us is to be transformed and to live lives that please him. God desires our ultimate health and he delivers results in a way that nothing else ever can or ever will. So, may we be serious and intentional about our relationship with God. But may we also do that remembering that God means what he says when he promises to be right there with us, helping us every single step of the way.